episode 201. What is the right diagnosis and the right treatment? Today, I speak with Clint Phillips, founder of Second MD and Medici. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. 20 to 40,000 people die in this country every year because they were misdiagnosed. And more than 70% of treatment plans are suboptimal. This is no surprise, really. By 2020, according to Elsevier, medical knowledge is predicted to double every 73 days. For any condition that a physician or a department doesn't see a whole lot of, it is pretty impossible to keep up. This is why second opinions are becoming a must-have, especially an expert in the exact specialty in question. But here's a wrinkle. Today, and for the foreseeable future, carrying out the treatment plan falls on the back of the patient. Inherent in this statement is the patient actually understanding what the treatment plan is. That means having access to physicians and healthcare professionals outside the exam room where we are all too stressed out half the time to remember what our questions are or recall the instructions or information we've been given. Today, I'm speaking with Clint Phillips, founder of Second MD and Medici, two companies designed to solve the issue of patients getting the best diagnosis and the right treatment, not only being prescribed, but understood and followed. Behavioral science and social determinants of health aside, a patient has no chance of following a treatment plan they don't understand or have questions about. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Clint. Thank you, Stacy. Delighted to be talking with you. Second MD was begun for virtual second opinions. So what Second MD was able to do was within three days, you're talking to one of the best doctors in the country related to your specialty. We've retrieved all your records for you. And all you're doing is click to open a video consult. There's notes that come after your consult. You can take those back to your specialist. And the reason that you need a virtual second opinion is because you went one place and you wanted to validate or verify what was said at that first place. Stacy, whether you are in a city or whether you're in a uh, rural setting, it's very difficult in both parts. For example, in Boston, today Boston's a healthcare hub, but it takes 60 days to book an appointment with a specialist, an average specialist. So when they look across the board of being able to make an appointment with a cardiologist, an orthopedist, gastro, neuro, any of these pieces, you're waiting 60 days for an average doctor. You might find out at that appointment that that's not the right doctor for you and have to wait another 60 days. So if you're in a city, it's easier maybe than rural, but it is not something that you, you know, is, you're going to walk into a great doctor tomorrow afternoon. If you're in a rural setting, then, you know, there's just added complexity as to how to know when to be able to seek care locally and when you need to be able to go in and find a top institution. You might know that, Clint, but I'm thinking about your average patient, average person who goes to a regional facility and is told 
by a physician, kind of point blank. Like I had an experience recently where I was told, actually, I had a very aggressive and terrible kind of cancer. And then I actually went to a facility that was known for its oncology, went to a great doctor who was like, no, you don't. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, somewhat harrowing, but it definitely maybe colors or even proves the point that I'm making here that health systems these days have a lot of incentives to not let patients leak. And as a part of that, maybe this is just also part of the kind of personality or the makeup of a physician where you kind of need to be sure of yourself. But maybe you add those two things together. And what winds up happening is it's like some extraordinary percentage of diagnoses these days are wrong in this country. Do you know what it is? Yes, a lot of data shows that Mayo, Hopkins, our own data show that about a third of diagnoses are incorrect. But the biggest problem is that about 75 to 80% of treatment plans are either not ideal or just flat out wrong. So we know that we improve about 75% of the treatment plans. So even if somebody has the right diagnosis, it doesn't mean that they're going for the right treatment. 10 years ago, nearly 11 years ago now, the definitive treatment for ovarian cancer was given with great acceptance across the entire community. Uh, Wall Street Journal showed a year ago that 10 years later, less than 50% of the doctors had adopted a very clear treatment plan that had been accepted in the medical community. So the adoption of information and the variance from hospital to hospital, doctor to doctor, is quite staggering. Yeah. And I mean, the quintessential example of that that everyone always talks about is the beta blocker one, where it took 17 years for beta blockers to be in a standardized way prescribed after heart attack when it was really clear 17 years prior that this was definitely the way to go. This show is directed at professionals within the healthcare industry. Given these staggering percentages, do we need to become a little bit more (laughs) self-aware? How does the statistics, which, you know, no matter how you cut it, are fairly staggering, the the percentage of diagnoses that are wrong and the number of treatment plans, which are, even if the diagnosis is correct, are suboptimal. What lessons are we taking away as an industry? Well, I think institutions are recognizing that medical knowledge is doubling every two years. So it's incredibly hard to be able to keep up with medical knowledge. Also, the challenge of hospitals are fighting for revenue, often in a war with payers, you know, on how to be able to survive or thrive. So they are having to balance being able to stay in business. And that means doing procedures, doing high complexity types of scenarios at the same time as trying to be safe, as trying to be compliant, as trying to be able to make sure that their quality outcomes, rankings are good. So I don't know that there's a huge push in the industry to say, hey, let's get rid of misdiagnoses. That's just one of probably 50 things on a hospital or physician group's list of things that they are working towards. If we're speaking to healthcare executives that are out in the marketplace today, and the goal is that we as an ecosystem and we as an industry do better, what's your advice for a provider organization or a payer 
or anybody who might be listening to this podcast in order to help. These are striking statistics that we have just talked about here. And it's going to take all of us working together in order to help facilitate care that produces the patient outcomes I think we all are looking for. What advice do you have to individuals who are working today in order to help mitigate and reduce what's going on clearly today out there? Stacey, it's a great question. I think one of the things that are easy to start with is having groups understand what they're really good at and understand what they're not good at. What are they willing to treat and do effectively? But the expectation that every hospital can treat everything well is very flawed. And there's some great data and books out there to say, specialize in what you really can do well with that focus, build efficiencies around certain conditions. And as you build efficiencies and knowledge around certain conditions, costs come down, uh, effectiveness goes up, satisfaction goes up, and it works really well. The challenge is trying to do everything well is just not feasible. And that is a reality in healthcare today that I think we have to face is that there's just certain things that we, we're not effective at. And I've heard organizations like Cleveland Clinic say, we don't want the headaches. You know, we don't want the simple things. Every time we take in a simple case of somebody that thinks they need to be here, it means that we can't take on a complex case around something that we know we do really well, like cardiology or orthopedics. So it sounds like we all should get a little bit self-aware relative to what we excel at and what we might not be superior at. Obviously, healthcare these days, it's a team sport. And there's any number of references, one of them being Dr. Robert Pearl to suggest this, that it, it's it's a number of disciplines, you know, tumor boards that are working together in order to affect the best care for a patient. If a hospital is not adequately equipped to deal with whatever is going on, then the care just by definition cannot be optimal, right? Correct. I think having that be clearly documented and available for patients to understand. It's very frustrating for a patient to start down a process with a, a group and find out that they uh, now cannot receive care, yet they've had to go through you know, all the difficulties of scheduling appointments, diagnostics to be told that this isn't something you know that they do. And now you almost are often starting again with the next facility is a very frustrating piece. So how do we make sure that at the patient level, that the funnel isn't open to just try and get everybody in the door and rather focus towards the right people, the right conditions, the right diseases, starting with the facility. Let's talk about this from a cost perspective, which obviously goes hand in hand with going to a second facility and seeing additional physicians. I mean, there's cost to the patient, but then there's also cost to whoever is ultimately paying for that care. And by ultimately paying, I mean either government, i.e. taxpayers, or an employer. So clearly, if you are one of those payers, and let's just take this from an employer standpoint at this juncture, making sure that somebody as quickly as possible gets the right diagnosis and then a treatment plan that is actually going to help the person either get healthy again and productive or not be wasteful at a minimum would clearly be an imperative if you're trying to get the most out of the healthcare dollars that you're investing. 
I think the only solution, you know, with our experience is fixing primary care. Often primary care is so difficult to access. There isn't a good relationship with the general practitioner. So patients are having to go directly. They're trying to bypass, you know, the steps that we used to have of you would talk to your doctor and your doctor was better equipped to tell you which facility to go to, whether to go regionally, whether to go nationally for the care, depending on the condition. But what's difficult right now is that there are the costs of me going directly to a hospital, getting a whole lot of care there, realizing it's not the best place, moving my care to another hospital is hugely expensive for the payer, hugely inefficient for everybody involved. So my best thinking, and from what I've read and seen, is trying to ensure that the primary care level relationship is there helps avoid people starting or entering the healthcare system at the wrong place. Yeah, and that probably puts actually extra burden on PCPs who are part of networks, you know, because one of the main reasons why hospital systems, and I'm not stating anything that we all don't already know, purchased a number of PCP practices in their area was to ensure the flow of referrals. So if there's any sort of metrics around how good a job the PCP is doing in referring to specialists within network, and perhaps that health system is not great at whatever it is that that PCP understands that patient needs, then the situation kind of doesn't clear itself up. Correct. We've seen uh, large hospitals buy uh, networks. We've seen them buy urgent care. And there's very specific metrics of referrals that these doctors have to now send into the health system. But unfortunately, that health system isn't always equipped with every need or is always the right referral necessarily. So it can make for some efficiencies when it is the right relationship and the hospital is very effective at uh, treating those conditions. It's a beautiful, seamless experience. But when it's not the right condition, there is a bit of an incentive there that's not best aligned in the interest of the patient. Patients are oftentimes the mule carrying their care plan forward or making sure that the right diagnosis happens and all the pieces get put together, making sure that the treatment plan, if there's supposed to be follow-up that's done, that there actually is that follow-up that happens. And, and that's unfortunate, but it is kind of the reality that sort of ready or not a lot of the burden of ensuring that the blood results get sent somewhere or whatnot falls on the patient. And what that entails, though, is that the patient really understands what's going on and what the next steps are supposed to be. And that after they've left the physician's office, they still recall them because, as we all know, patients, meaning everybody, only remembers about 15 percent of what we're told. So... I could see that that also is a gap in all of this, that not only do a patient, does a patient need to realize and critically think about the information that they've heard and be the one to raise their hand and say, yes, I'd like to get a second opinion on this or <laughs> call, you know, second MD. But they also need to really understand the information that they're given so that they can push their care forward. Before I dig into that a little bit, because I know you've got thoughts, Clint, is there any color that you would want to add to what I just said? Yes, I think the mule comment is, is very interesting and is a reality that patients face today. I don't know that there is a, 
a fix where we're going to be able to take that responsibility off of the patient and say, you know, here's how we put it on the doctor. I think one of the reasons that the patient is left as the mule is that communication is so difficult in healthcare, which is one of the reasons we've pursued Medici is because that communication of a doctor from a primary care to a specialist or a specialist to a specialist is so broken and so impossible that the only person really who can do it and is motivated enough to do it is the patient. So they really are left carrying this burden by themselves most often. And while it can significantly be improved, there is a, a reality that I, as a doctor, wanting to help one of my patients get into a hospital or a health system or to the right doctor is such a difficult undertaking that I'm just going to say, you know what, here's who I think you should go and see, and maybe we can help try and get you an appointment or use my name. But outside of that, the work that I'd have to do just isn't reasonable for me to carry that all the way. It is a definite stumbling block and reality that, you know, well-intended doctors with the best of intentions really can't alleviate that burden from the patient today. Going back to what I had mentioned earlier about the patient not necessarily recalling what happened within the physician appointment or what happens really often is that they get home and they realize there's six questions that they forgot to ask. I mean, I think we all recognize yes. that exam rooms are very stressful places and even very smart, very proactive people can easily in that stressful moment in time neglect to ask a question that seems incredibly self-evident after <laughs> they get home and have a couple of seconds to think about it. And because yes. of that, them now being responsible and accountable for ensuring that they take the next right steps or get an accurate blood test. You know, like if you don't fast for a certain number of hours or drink the right fluid for the scan or whatever you got to do, then, you know, your care falters. So some of these instructions are very practical and immediate. And then the patient can't remember what they are. And if they call the office, then they get the nurse and the nurse doesn't quite know what was said. It just becomes incredibly difficult for the patient to actually do a good job carrying out their instructions. You had some insight around that or you compared and contrast the way the healthcare industry works to some other industries. Do you want to talk about that? Because it's something that, frankly, personally, I hadn't really considered what the paradigmatic differences are. We know that healthcare, one of the big uh, frustrations is that informational layer of what did the doctor say? And we've, you know, I've witnessed that same thing treating people where husband and a wife are in the room, they go home, they start fighting because the wife said, <laughs> um, this is what Clint said. And the husband said, no, he said, I mustn't do that. And so, you know, then they're trying to get hold of me to find out what was the actual sense. Maybe they can get in a portal you know, to find some of that information which you're usually missing. So the communication layer, being able to make that information easy. You had done a great comparator between the healthcare industry and lawyers or accountants who, yes. who bill for their time. Do you want to just talk about that a bit? One of the complexities we have in healthcare is that most other industries, there is about a 2 to 3% cost around billing, retrieving billing, sending billing, around that. In healthcare, it's 7 to 12% the cost of just managing billing. 
And it's so complex, as you know, if you've ever seen a statement from your doctor. Fee-for-service, you don't even understand the hundreds of charges that might come back from an encounter. Where we've looked for inspiration is looking at lawyers. It is very simple, and it is very clear how a lawyer charges. If my lawyer opens and reads an email, it's $16. They charge in you know, tenths of an hour or sixths of an hour. We know if they've spent a half an hour on something, the charge for that versus an hour on something. In healthcare, it is way more complicated that if I wanted an hour of a doctor's time, there is no way to be able to pay for that, to be able to reimburse for that. It's all done with very complicated billing and coding. So when we look at doctor's times as a function of their day, how much of their day does this cost, is way simpler in how we help a doctor set their rate when they're consulting on second MD or Medici or to other pieces is to say, how much time is this going to take? And lawyers offer a really simple billing model that you can completely understand at the end of the day when you get a bill is a lawyer spent this much time on this issue and that much time on that issue and here are the resulting charges. Healthcare's complexity around that is crazy, so much so that a lawyer often can share an assistant with three or four other lawyers. So you've got one assistant supporting four lawyers. Yet in healthcare, you have four assistants supporting one doctor. And that layer of cost, that layer of burden is often very difficult to quantify, to be able to make a case for the costs and additional things. So there's, as we look outside of healthcare where things work to try to solve things in healthcare, you uh, often can look at adjacent industries of other professionals to find vastly simpler solutions. And, you know, one of the reasons why, as often said, that we are in the place that we are in this country is because our system rewards procedures and tests and it doesn't reward time. And, you know, what winds up happening if you're especially a PCP uh, and not a specialist, that patient comes in for an appointment and then they have questions and it's difficult to find the time to be responding to patients while you have other patients in exam rooms and the the financial pressures that are on you. So it sounds like, and you know, obviously this show is geared toward the healthcare industry. So there's doctors that are listening who I am 100% sure are nodding their heads right now. So if, if I am a physician, it sounds like what you're saying is that there is an opportunity through Medici, which is your product, to set yourself up so that if a patient does want to reach out and is willing to pay for it to gain clarity or clarification, or maybe they just got a random other question, that they can do so and then they get a $16 bill. Whether a doctor's using Medici or another tool, I think an important thing for doctors to understand is there is a massive shift coming in healthcare. Part of it is by care moving from fee-for-service to value-based. And if done properly, that can be a huge benefit for doctors. If done badly, they will hate their job even worse if they're not able to easily manage these populations. The other big trend we see is moving to virtual care. The average doctor doesn't realize that by 2024, there will be more virtual visits being done every day than in-office visits. But the average doctor is completely unprepared 
for this reality and they're saying, nah, I don't like it, I don't think I'll do it, but they are losing patients every single day already and they're going to be losing dozens of patients a day if they are not able to address the change in consumer behavior, if they're not able to address the change in payer behavior. We feel their burden. The amount of an administration that a doctor has to do every day that a lawyer doesn't is crazy. And I mean, compare it to an accountant or compare it to an architect. The administrative burden on doctors today is completely unsustainable. It is affecting their job satisfaction. It's affecting their productivity. And as a result, they don't get the time with patients that they most enjoy is one of their most satisfying parts of their job because of all these inefficiencies that have crept into healthcare. And how does Medici solve for that? Well, making it easy for a doctor to say, I am now accessible. Instead of you having to speak to three people to get hold of me and to have to drive, park, schedule, sit in the big waiting room, fill out papers, sit in the little waiting room, talk to somebody else, or to have an exchange with me, I'm going to make that really easy for you. But I'm going to charge for these encounters. For some people, they go, absolutely, it's completely worth me paying. I'm on a high deductible health plan anyway, so I'm responsible for the first thousand or three thousand dollars. So it makes it very easy for a small section, for some doctors, a large section of their population to do that. It allows the doctor to earn revenue by not being in their office. Doctors are the only profession that can only earn revenue sitting in their office. My accountant, my lawyer, I don't even know where they are when they do work for me, and I don't care, but I know exactly where my doctor is. They're stuck in the office. And we find that very unacceptable and solvable. The real essence is we just watched how communication was starting to happen around the health system in the UK. Doctors were using WhatsApp because it was really difficult to use their current system. We know that nearly 100% of doctors in Brazil use WhatsApp to manage their patients. Doctors in the US are texting, they're emailing, they're calling. It's fragmenting your information. It's not tracked. It's not compliant. It's not billable. And so we've just really said, well, what if there was a beautiful, seamless communication platform that worked for the doctor, worked for the patient, and ensure the doctor was had the ability to earn a living and have some flexibility. So basically, if I'm a doctor or a practice, I sign up and then I send a note out to my patients that says, hey, if you'd like to get a hold of me outside the scope of, I'm going to assume your insurance, then here's my rate and shoot me a note. Well, it incorporates on various levels with your insurance. So if you're on a high deductible health plan, as most employees are now, if you have a health savings account, you can use those dollars for the visits with the doctor. So we're not just trying to provide a concierge solution, which we have many concierge doctors. We're really trying to address the deeper needs of healthcare, the underserved populations. Now in Florida, Medicaid will pay doctors a fee per month per member. So when communication gets easier, a lot of the challenges that you've spoken about today just start to improve when we take down some of these siloed walls. So Medici is subject to telehealth regulations then, and thereby it's a state-by-state type of endeavor. Correct. Doctors are, we provide guidance to doctors according to the state that they're in to say, hey, in your state, 
part of your consult will have to be video or in your state, you can or can't establish a new relationship with the patient. So doctors are increasingly aware of the opportunities or the limitations that telemedicine provide. And we're there to say, whatever the regulation is, we want to be able to support you so that if messaging, phoning, videoing is depending on what's allowed and what's reimbursed, you have all those tools at your disposal. Just to kind of wrap things up, the second MD solution that you had alluded to earlier, that is funded quite frequently by employers who obviously have a very vested interest to ensure that there's not an operation done for cancer, for example, that a patient doesn't actually have. If I am an employer listening to this and I have an interest in knowing more about Second MD, where should I go? Second.md is the, the website. You can reach out to sales at second.md or myself. But the focus of Second MD has been on the larger employers who basically are the insurers. They self-insured companies. And that's really been the focus because they often bear the weight of incorrect decisions, wrong treatments, misguided treatment plans. So that is a way now that large employers in the smaller employee space, what we've seen is incredible support from the two largest insurers now, who not only provide second MD for their own employees, but they are starting to bundle it in for some of the smaller companies. So there are smaller companies now that are starting to either have it bundled in or have it as an upcharge for them to be able to have that type of peace of mind and assurance that in this world of very complex and difficult healthcare, you have somebody who says, I'm going to hold your hand this next step and make sure that you get the advice and the expertise that you, uh, that you need. But to be clear, we've really focused on the Fortune 100 companies where the weight and the burden of healthcare has just become increasingly difficult. But whether you are a truck driver with waste management or an investment banker with Morgan Stanley or a professor with Texas A&M University, the program really works across any type of economic environment. And if someone, a provider or a practice, is interested in learning more about installing Medici as a way to augment their existing business model with a on-demand telehealth solution, where should they go? You download Medici in the App Store. So go to the iOS or the Android App Store, download Medici for doctors. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Clint. Stacy, thank you for your great questions and your passion for uh, helping us understand and make healthcare better. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.